he's not paying attention. Um, so anyway, it, it's an honor to, to be in front of you all today. I love this church very much. This church um, holds a special place in my heart. This is a beautiful, loving congregation. I want to say thank you for your uh, prayers for me while I was studying for and taking the bar exam recently. I know that the church has been praying for me. A lot of people have come up and asked me how it went and told me they were praying for me. And my only answer really is that I feel like it went okay, but I won't know until October. So until then, keep me in your prayers for peace of mind and sanity. Um, but I, I do want to tell you that that does mean a lot to me. I appreciate that. We have, we have battles and trials and circumstances that we all go through in our lives, some bigger than others. And it's not until you reach that point, it's not until you go through something like that, that you realize how much the prayers of a spirit-filled church really mean to you. The peace of mind that it can give you walking into that situation and you can tell yourself, I've got God on my side because my church family is praying for me. I know that it's going to be okay because he's listening to their prayers. When two or three agree on one thing in his name, he'll do it. And that means a lot. I want to thank you for that. I honor you today for being here. And last but not least, I also honor God and his word. That's, uh, that's, he, he's the reason we're here today. And I've not come uh, to stand up here and just talk to you, but I've also come to receive something myself. Ich habe vergessen, wenn du Übersetzung willst, Sache kann es bestimmt machen. Sie hat schon viermal gemacht. I was just saying that I forgot if he wants if he wants translation, Sarah can do it. She's she's done it a lot. I'm a little hard to translate for, a little more difficult than the average bear, but 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 she's got experience, so she can do it. Um, anyway. Um, I would, like I would say, I've come also to receive something from the Lord. It's not, when you, when you stand behind this podium, I think probably more times than not, you're in the crosshairs of what you're saying more than other people are. But God's word is powerful. It's alive. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But not only that, when the word of God comes, it brings faith with it. Scripture says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So that tells me that when I'm running low on faith, which happens, we, we all come to that point where it's just hard to believe. We, we, we don't always stand on the pinnacle of faith like the lady with the issue of blood who said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, sometimes our faith doesn't even let us take the first step toward Jesus. But when I'm running low on faith, when I feel like my mustard seed is just barely hanging in there, I know that I can get to the word of God. And if I can get to the word of God, if I can hear the word of God, the scripture says that the word of God brings faith with it, that faith comes by hearing. It doesn't say it produces hearing. It doesn't, say it, cre or it doesn't say it produces faith. It doesn't say it creates faith inside of us. It says it brings faith. Faith comes by hearing. That's something sent by God to me for my particular obstacle. It makes sense to me then why Jesus said that 
man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. You and I can't make it on just physical sustenance alone. We also need faith food. We need the word of God. So I've come to have my faith increase today, amen? If you've come to have your faith increase today, I'd ask you to pray with me right now. I'm going to be honest with you. The past couple days in particular, I've been battling some um, physical attacks and preparing for this, uh, this lesson today. But I do believe I've heard from the Lord. I do believe I have something to give you all. But I also want to note at the outset <clears throat> something that I noticed as I was preparing this lesson. We've been doing the discipleship project. Very thankful that we've been doing this this project I've learned a lot I've grown a lot myself but one thing I've noticed about this particular lesson is this is one of in terms of comprehension this is one of the harder lessons that we've had so far so I want you to pray with me not not only that we receive the word but that that God helps me and anoints me to present this to you in a way that we all can take from that he anoints our hearts to receive it would you pray with me Lord we love you and we thank you today for the opportunity to be in your presence I thank you that I feel you already in this place. I thank you, Lord, that your word is powerful, that it's alive, that it's active, Jesus. I thank you that you can bring faith right now to our hearts. Whoever is here, God, that needs faith and faith increase, that needs to fill up on their faith, I pray that you would do it today. I pray that you anoint me, Lord, to present this word the way that you wish it to be presented. Lord, that you speak through me, that you anoint our hearts to receive it. In your precious name we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So our main overarching goal in this uh, sub-series of the Discipleship Project, if, you, if you're not familiar with the Discipleship Project, if you're a guest today, this is a, a year-long series, basically, that we've started that's composed of sub-series within it. And uh, we start a new sub-series each quarter, and each quarter also has sub-series in that. And our overarching goal for this, this particular portion of this quarter has been um, learning how we can become mature disciples of Jesus Christ. And so far, as uh, the, the other individuals who have stood here have, have excellently taught us, we've learned that in order to be a mature follower of Jesus, not just to be a follower in name only, not just to ask what's it going to cost me and then have to make up my mind, is it really worth it? And sometimes I think it's not, so maybe I turn back around. But to be a mature disciple of Jesus Christ, not one that can only take in milk, but also I want to be able to move on to be able to take in the meat. That's what Paul told us we need to do. He said, don't stay on milk forever. That's not good for you. It's not beneficial for you. It may not necessarily have to do with the plan of salvation, but it is not beneficial to you as a believer in this world to not move on to the more difficult things to understand. So I, I, I want to become mature. And we've learned that in order to become a mature disciple, we first have to make the choice to follow him. And when we were discussing this, we, we recognized what the master's own definition of, is of what it means to be his disciple. And we've learned that recognizing that every believer is a disciple, if he or she obeys Jesus' commands, 
especially to make more disciples, is at the center of that. We've also learned that we have to experience the transformation that only Jesus Christ can bring if we want to be a mature disciple. We talked about what it looks like being a disciple in the 21st century. A lot of times we hear, hear it discussed what it was like to be a first century believer, the attacks that they faced in the world, the, the persecution that they faced. We're very blessed to live in the world that we live in now, in the country that we live in now. But don't fool yourself, there is persecution that exists in this world. It's of a different kind, it's of a different nature. It's more of a spiritual attack than a physical attack, but it does exist. And it's important to, to know what those attacks are to a 21st century believer. But also we learned that presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, as Paul admonished us to do, is an all-in kind of thing. It's a holistic dedication of our lives to Jesus. I, I can't present my body as a living sacrifice if it still has blemishes in it. There, there, there's nowhere in the scripture where God commanded his people to present an unworthy sacrifice. In fact, when his people presented things that were unworthy to him, he rejected it. Cain and Abel is a perfect example. You've got two different sacrifices. You can look at the two different intentions. But God only accepted the one that was worthy to be sacrificed to him. So I have to give myself as a worthy sacrifice. I can't give myself as anything less. It's a holistic dedication of my life. But today, we're going to move on to, to a third faction of, of what it means to be a mature disciple. And that is, in order to be a mature disciple of Jesus, we must move beyond separation. We must move beyond separation. Our focus scripture today is Acts 7 and 6 through 7, uh, but I'd like to read a little bit before that and a verse after that as well just to provide you with a little bit of context. I apologize to the people in the back. They won't have my extra scriptures, but if you just um, listen along with me. In Acts chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Then said the high priest, Are these things so? It's a good question to start out with. Verse 2 says, And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The glory of God appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, after he dwelt in Quran. And he said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come to the land which I shall show thee. My pages are sticking together today. Verse 4. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Quran. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into his land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him. And as yet, he had no children, no child. Verse 6, this begins our, our focus scripture. And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil 400 years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me 
in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob. And Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. Amen. In understanding the nation of Israel as God's chosen people, it's important for us to understand their ultimate goal. Sometimes we look at the obstacles that they faced on their journey. We look at coming out of Egypt and the Exodus, and it's so easy for us to relate to that because so many times in Scripture, our coming out of sin, our being brought out of sin by Almighty God, is related to the Exodus of, of the Israelites. But we have to remember it's so important for us to focus on this fact that God's goal for the children of Israel was not only to deliver them from Egypt. Delivering the Israelites from Egypt was just a step in God's ultimate goal. God's ultimate goal for you and for you and me is not only to save us from our sins, but to have that communion with us for eternity, to be able for us, for us to be able to be with him for eternity. He said, "I go away to prepare a place for you." That's the whole point of it. That's the whole point of the sacrifice. The whole point of the sacrifice and the ta sacrifices in the, ta in the uh, temple in the Old Testament was so that the people could have a communion with God. They could have a connection with God. And that's the whole point of Jesus' sacrifice. And that's the whole point of the exodus out of Egypt. But God's plan was not only to deliver them, but also to take them into the promised land. The original promise that, that God gave to Abraham I think those were a couple of your blanks, Egypt and promised land. It is easy for us to focus on this victorious triumph of God leading Israel out from the Egyptians, working through Moses, a man that had problems with his speech, beginning what would be a long journey of following the great I Am. The story of Israel began with a journey of Abraham. Abraham was called to be separated. God spoke to Abraham and said, separate yourself from your people, from your kindred, from your land, from their gods, and go where I tell you to go is basically what he said. Go to the place that I'll show you. So he was called to separation, but also to a journey. Just like Abraham was called to separation and then to a journey, Israel was called to separation and then a journey. Just four chapters separate Joseph's sons visiting Jacob in Genesis 48 and Moses' call at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. But while it is important to study this particular event, it's also important for us to learn that it's not only about us coming out of the hand of sin, like Israel was brought out from the hand of Egypt, but that we have a greater purpose ahead of us. In a way, you might say that the separation of Israel coming out of Egypt was really just the beginning. Yes, it was the end to their struggles. Yes, it was the end to their slavery under the taskmaster. But in the big picture, we talked about, I think, in the very beginning of the discipleship project, seeing it from the big picture of God. In the big picture, the end of their struggles was just the beginning of what God wanted to do with them. The journey from Ramses to the Promised Land was not easy. 
You might be familiar with the story as the people travel, God deals with them in various ways. He gives laws to them and instructs them how they're supposed to live a holy life. There are also murmurings and mutinies and people that, after Moses just led them out of Egypt and out of their bondage and delivered them from the taskmaster, now they're turning against him and, and saying, we had it much better in Egypt. Why did we ever leave in the first place? At least we had water to drink in Egypt because God can deliver you from Egypt, but he can't give you water when you need it. It doesn't take long for the people to start wishing they had never separated themselves in the first place. I don't have time today to go into full detail about everything that happens on this journey, how God instructed his people on the tabernacle to create that, begin to create that communion that we were talking about just a moment ago, or how they walked 40 years in the wilderness until, as the scripture says, all the men of war that came out of Egypt were consumed because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord. But there is a point on their journey to which I'd like to draw your attention today. In Numbers 12.10, the Lord speaks to Moses and instructs him to send out 12 men, one of each tribe, land of Canaan. I need, these pages need to come under submission today. In other words, Moses was to send out 12 spies, and he does. He picks out a man from each tribe, a young man, and he sends him out as spies to see the land of Canaan. Among the 12 spies are two men of particular importance to us today, and that's Joshua and Caleb. You may have heard of them. Joshua and Caleb were close to one another. By definition of their appointment, they were of different tribes, but there was still a connection between them. Not only did they have a special relationship, but they were also special young men. There was something unusual and extraordinary about them. They were both on the journey to the promised land, and one could speculate the excitement that they might have felt knowing that the journey could soon be over. The promised land to their fathers that God promised to Abraham and promised to the patriarchs and so on could soon be in their people's possession. While others were murmuring and complaining behind the leader's back, these two likely passed the time by encouraging one another, sharing their ideas of just how fantastic the promised land would prove to be. Now these young men find themselves appointed by Moses for this special mission that they didn't ask for, Moses needed some young men to help get the assembly over into Canaan. On their mission, they find two very different types of things are occupying the promised land. On the one hand, they see lush fields, fruitful vineyards, much to be desired. It was obvious that entering into the land flowing with milk and honey would happen here. But carefully note that when God promises you something, we have to be careful not to be tricked by the enemy into accepting an, an, an imitation. Excuse me. Satan operates by imitation. Scripture says he goes about as a, as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Notice the very important two-letter word in that sentence, as a roaring lion. That means he's not one, but he pretends to be one. His bark is bigger than his bite. 
And what is he imitating? Scripture says that God is the Lion of Judah. So he imitates what God presents to you and gives you something fake. What happened in the Garden of Eden? God spoke to Adam and Eve, and he said, don't eat this fruit or you're going to die. And Satan gave him an imitation of, of God's word and said, well, that's not really what God said. This sounds like what God said. This is what he really said. And Eve believed it. But God, on the other hand, if he promises you something, he doesn't give you something else. He's not going to promise you an apple and give you an orange. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men would count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Don't let Satan trick you into settling just outside of your promise. With the beauty of the land on the one hand and the force like they had never seen before on the other hand, they faced yet another obstacle in their journey. Our two young men started to realize maybe this wasn't going to be the end of their travels. Like the other ten, Joshua and Caleb saw the giants that inhabited the land. It has been said that some of these giants were men over nine feet tall. It's a very large person. To many, including the other ten spies, these large men were a force not to go to war with or a fight to be picked. After having traveled for so long as a nation, ten of the twelve men were stopped dead in their tracks, just short of the promise. Don't let the giants in your life or in your community stop you short of the promise. There's a promise that we are called to obtain. There's a promise of heaven that we're called to obtain. We're supposed to press for the mark of the higher calling. But there's also a promise about creating disciples, and we're going to get into creating to, to training disciples later on in the lesson, but there's a promise that God gave us. He said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The important word is gates. Gates don't go out to war. Gates protect what's at home. So what the scripture is saying is when you go out into the world and you start to bring people in from the byways and the highways, when you enter into the hell of the world to train disciples, the gates of hell can't keep you out. We can't stop short just outside the gates and not fulfill our calling. After they returned to the camp, the worry warts of the group shared their opinions. Everybody's got an opinion. It's usually the opinions that stink that are presented most loudly. But these ten, outnumbering the two that we're talking about today, they, they gave their opinions and they said, we're not able to go against this people. They're stronger than us. And they gave a, a bad report to the children of Israel. Bad reports can be really discouraging. They said the land which we have gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. Then we saw the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. But Joshua and Caleb had a different perspective. They were motivated by faith in their God to follow through all the way to their destiny. Billy, I guess you could say that they walked by faith and not by sight. 
And you and I are constantly, every day, every moment of our lives, faced with a choice of two destinies. Just like these two young men faced, we face a choice between two destinies. The first choice is to believe and follow and enter the promised land. The second is to accept what we see, the giants that are in the land, and accept that those giants are too big for the creator of heaven and earth. Well, you don't know the giants I face. You don't know the report I got from the doctor last week. You don't know how many bills I don't know how I'm going to pay. My giants are too big for me to inhabit the land. Joshua and Caleb realized that to God, it is not enough to get them out of bondage and free them from the whip of the taskmaster. But it was God's plan to fully accomplish his promise and their destiny of becoming a kingdom of priests in the Holy Land. God desired to restore them in the land which he had promised to Abraham generations before, a land now occupied by the Canaanites. The land which God chose for his people was not at random. It was geographically significant. The land of Israel is a natural land bridge between Europe, Africa, and Asia. Travelers journeying from Africa would naturally come through Israel on their way to Europe or Asia and vice versa for the other two continents. This created an epicenter for the teaching of the law and the ways of God and communion with the Holy of Holies at the temple. And God still has geographic location and strategy in mind for us today for reaching this world with his message. I, one way that I look at this is it's kind of like God has a really big chessboard. I like to play chess, and so I analogize it with chess. Maybe you've never played chess, but in chess there's a board of limited spaces, and you have a limited number of pieces. Each piece has its own gifts, its own abilities, its own ways that it can serve you, the player. And you have to strategize. Sometimes you try to think two or three spaces ahead of your opponent, and where you put your pieces matters. If you put your piece in the wrong spot, your enemy could take it. If you put your, your piece in the right spot, you can overcome your enemy. And the way God deals with us is pretty similar. The world is like a chessboard to him. And he will place you and me as his pieces in the most effective and productive space for us at our time to reach the lost. All of it is to position us to reach lost souls. And we have to remember that we will always be most effective at reaching the lost when we are geographically in the will of God. Does that mean that I can't reach lost people if I'm not geographically in the will of God? Not necessarily. Your light can still shine when you're somewhere that you're maybe not necessarily supposed to be in that moment. You can still reach people, but you'll be most effective when you're in the right space for the peace that you are in the chessboard. So while being geographically positioned by God is important, as we just discussed, it's not the only factor. And the other one is this, and this comes up to your, your next two blanks. God desires for us to be separated and distinct from the culture of the world, and he desires for us to become 
dedicated to his mission. He desires for us to be separated and distinct from the culture of the world, and he desires for us to become dedicated to his mission. Like the children of Israel, we have the opportunity every day on our journey to stop short. But our calling beyond separation is really twofold. First of all, as we've discussed, is the eternal promised land that we're on our way to. That's our journey as a Christian. That's the race that Paul talked about running, right? fighting the good fight of faith. That's, that's the, the journey that's before us. There's coming a glorious day when Jesus Christ himself will come in the clouds with great power and glory. And they that slumber in Christ will rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be gathered up with them to meet him in the air. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 55 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, maybe not Donald Trump, but the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? That's what we're when we're finally going to cross over into our eternal promised land and make heaven our home, where there will be no more sorrow, no more illnesses, no more pain, no more worries, no more bills that we don't know how we're going to pay. Right now, we're on our journey to make it to that promised land. If anyone ever asks you why you don't believe that you can come to Christ once and then just turn around and live however you want to live, that all that stuff about living this way, the right way, the way God tells you to do is really, really not important. You can just tell them that you've never made it to point B by standing still in point A. You've got to go the whole distance. I've never made it to my objective by only remaining in my starting place. My starting place is Acts 2.38, and it's absolutely essential. I believe it 100%. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's absolutely essential. You cannot see the kingdom of God without being born again of the water and of the Spirit. Those are Jesus' words. We, we can quibble all we want to about what the disciples said after, after Jesus ascended, what apostolic doctrine really is, but Jesus said it himself. Unless you're born again, you're not even going to see the kingdom of heaven. And that's important. But just being born again doesn't get me to my final resting place. I can't make it to point B without leaving point A. If Israel started out in Ramses, which is scripture notes is, is a city where they departed out of Egypt, they began their journey. If they stopped just outside of that city, they never would have made it to their destination. They could have been God's people. They would have been very disobedient, but they could have been God's people. But they never would have made it to the promised land. You and I have to make the whole journey. This means we don't ever stop believing, even when we see giants. We don't ever stop living holy. 
We don't ever stop speaking in tongues and praying in the Spirit when we don't know what to say. It's continual growth, continually walking with him until he returns. My wife and my, my dad and I were on the highway yesterday. We were headed back from picking up my car. My car had to have some work. Billy calls it my student car. That's pretty accurate. Um, and it, it's had a lot of work, but I'm thankful for it. Um, it's the same car that for a long stretch I was thanking the Lord just because it started. Uh, but we were picking it up from the shop again, and, and we, were, we were driving on the highway. And, of course, I had a lot of things going through my mind. I was thinking i got to prepare for Sunday school. I really don't have time to go pick my car up right now. I've got so many other things I've got to do. And my mind was, you know, in a million places, whatever. We were driving along, and I, I look out, and I see this large group of people. I mean, maybe, maybe ten people. It was a big group of people just walking down the highway. I looked over, and I saw their vehicle with the hood popped. I thought, uh-oh, that's not good. And what, really what caught my eye was not the size of this group, Sister Joyce. It was that one of them was carrying a small child on their hip. And I thought, it's really hot outside. That child really does not need to be out in that heat. It's a long way into town. So I, I called my dad. They were in a car following me after they dropped me off to pick mine up. I called him and I said, did you see those people over on the side of the road? And he said, no. He had been sleeping in, in the back seat. Um, he said, no, I didn't see him. I said, well, they, they had a small child with them. Should we go back and help them? And he said, sure. And so we, uh, 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 turning lane to the left, came up pretty closely. It's a split highway, two lanes on both sides. So we whipped it around, and we went back. We passed them. I was kind of looking at them as we were driving by, seeing exactly what was going on. We come up to the next turn. We whip it back around again. We come up and pull up behind them. They're already walking toward two vehicles that had, in the meantime, stopped. I only saw the enormous truck that was in front of me. I didn't see the other vehicle behind it, but we pulled up. There were two other vehicles already there, and they were kind of trying to figure out how all these people were going to fit in this car. And the truck was a lot bigger than the car they showed up in, so I really don't know what wasn't matching up, but, but they, were, they were trying to figure it out, two or three of them. And so I walked up to the uh, lady I'm assuming was the grandmother of the group. And I said, um, do, you need a, do you need a ride into town? And she was, I mean, uh, I, was, I was afraid for, for her health. Uh, she looked like she was about ready to keel over. She, she was out of breath, and she looked at me, and she was trying to talk between her gasps for air, and she told me that there was something wrong with the oil. I, I didn't really care what was wrong with the car. I just wanted to know if they were okay. I said, that's all right. You don't have to explain it to me. I, I, just, I just want to know, are you okay? And what she said to me struck me. She looked at me in the middle of her desperation, and she said, if we can just make it to Walmart, we'll know what to do. And... Of course, Walmart is a funny place, but 
I, it, it might have been the spirit, or it might have been my crazy, crazy mind. I'm going to go with the spirit. What she said to me was, if I can just make it to a place where I can catch my breath, where I can get out of this heat, where I can get out of my struggle, I can sit down and figure out what to do. We'll be okay. And I can't tell you how many times in my walk with God, in my journey to the promised land, I've been like that woman on the side of the road. I can't even get one foot in front of the other. I'm just barely making it. I feel like I'm going to pass out before somebody shows up. And I'm thinking if I can just make it to Walmart, if I can just make it to a place where I can catch my breath, where I can reconnect with God, I'll be okay. And she didn't know how she was going to do it. They were just doing their best, acting on instinct, I guess. My dad revealed to me later, I didn't know this at the time, he told me after we were already back at the house, he said, as we were pulling up, the Lord spoke to me about this situation. He said, all the Lord said was, she just prayed to me to send somebody. She prayed for one person, and four cars were sent. I don't know how long they were pleading with God to send help. I don't know how long they sat there thinking, surely somebody is going to stop before they started walking and doing all that they knew to do. But I do know that she prayed, and she believed that in the middle of her desperation, God would hear her. Four vehicles parked out on the shoulder of the highway. Well, it turned out that they figured out a way to fit everybody in the truck that was twice the size of their car. And between her labored breaths, this really got me. She looked at me and she said, God bless you. That's all she could get out. She was barely making it to the truck. But she looked at me and said, God bless you. Still affected by her trial and her circumstances, I could see it on her. I could see that she was struggling. She looked at me. All I did was stop and ask if she was okay. I didn't even take her anywhere. She looked at me and said, God bless you. She blessed me in the middle of her trial. You don't always know who God is trying to bless when you're going through circumstances that you don't understand. Our journey isn't always easy, and sometimes we feel like we might not even make it to Walmart. But we can't give up just short of the promised land, and I'm hurrying. I mentioned earlier that our calling is beyond separation is twofold. The first is enduring to the end, to our eternal promised land. But the second aspect of it is to be fruitful and to train new disciples. We are called to be fruitful unto God. Colossians 1, 9 through 10 says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled, be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. One way that we're called to be fruitful, one good work is training disciples. This is a commandment of the Lord and is part of our duty to him. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples 
of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which we know is Jesus, teaching them, the which we know is Jesus was my addition, teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. A mature disciple of Christ is fruitful in training more disciples. Your next blank says, the only fruitfulness a transformed disciple is capable of producing is more disciples. The only fruitfulness a transformed disciple is capable of producing is more disciples. I found this um, a bit difficult to grasp the way it's worded, so I'm going to give you my interpretation of it. You can take it for, for however much it means to you, but this is how I read this. A mature disciple, by definition, is fruitful in producing disciples. And a completely mature disciple will not produce any bitter fruits. Believe it or not, we, we, we know about the fig tree that Jesus cursed because it didn't produce any fruit. But there's not only two statuses that we can carry. We can be fruitful unto good works. We can not have any fruit at all, not producing any good fruit. Or we can produce bad fruit. Jesus said, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. If you're not bringing forth good fruit, you're not being fruitful. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. This tells me that there are bad fruits that point, will point out the people I need to watch out for. So if making disciples is not only a commandment, but it's also producing fruit, Matthew 7 tells me that a bad tree can't make disciples for Jesus Christ. If making disciples is good fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit, then a bad tree can't make disciples. That's why David's words in Psalm 51 make sense. I'm going to skip down to verse 9. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Watch. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto, me, unto thee. What David understood was that if he wanted to make disciples, if he wanted to train people in the ways of God, he had to get his life right first. Your final fill-in-the-blanks say this. It's a really long sentence. I'll read it a couple of times. Some Christians today have had their sin problem radically dealt with through their obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they have turned their backs on the world. That's separation. But they have not been successful in impacting lost people around them. You can be separated and be absolutely non-productive. There are probably a lot of motivational things I could stand here and say to you about how to be more impactful in the world, but really there's a scripture that stands out to me that says it better than anything I could ever say. Jesus is speaking, and he says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. David said, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be cleansed in that same scripture, in that same chapter. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. 
Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I believe that becoming more fruit, fruitful in discipleship, in turn gaining the posture of a mature disciple, begins first with recognition that God is God, He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him and that we can't do it without him and without repentance. A good tree will produce good fruit. A mature disciple will produce more disciples and new disciples are good fruit. God bless you. You've got 10 minutes before the next service.